welcome to the Coalition for Physician Wellbeing's podcast, The Wellbeing Connector, where through our guests, we explore ideas for making healthcare a better place to work and serve. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Jennifer Reed. Dr. Reed is a board-certified psychiatrist and award-winning medical educator with a private practice in Philadelphia. She also has a clinical faculty role at the University of Pennsylvania. She attended medical school at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and completed her psychiatry residency at UCLA. Dr. Reed is a regular contributor to Psychology Today with her blog, Think Like a Shrink, and writes in podcasts as The Reflective Doc. Thank you, Jennifer, for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Michael. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start. I, I noticed on your website, Reflective Doc, you mentioned that uh, I help people, help professionals overcome burnout and move forward into fulfilling lives. So could you tell me a little bit about how you got into your current area of focus and uh, what's the story there and how it progressed since then? Absolutely. So I am a psychiatrist. I see primarily adults and focus on anxiety, depression, insomnia. And I think secondarily, I also, or you know, equally important, is that I grew up in a family of physicians. My maternal grandfather my grand, and my father were both family medicine practitioners in rural North Dakota. My sister's a surgeon. My husband's a surgeon. Many of my close friends are physicians. And so it's sort of the combination of the clinical work that I do and helping people who are coming in feeling really overwhelmed, unmotivated, anxious, not sleeping well, not taking care of themselves. And frankly, a number of those patients that I see are physicians and our other healthcare providers. And so in combination, I find myself growing increasingly concerned about the mental health and burnout, you know, different than depression, but both of those things that are at such high numbers among our healthcare colleagues. And I know also you've written about uh, your experience during training in which one of your colleagues uh, committed suicide. Can you speak to that and how that affected you? Yeah. Well, it was when I was in my second year, and this was an intern, and we had been on call together several times and had had lengthy conversations because he was contemplating switching out of psychiatry, potentially into internal medicine, or just didn't feel like it was the right fit for him. And because I had switched from internal medicine into psychiatry, we talked a lot about you know what that transition's like, how do you decide, how do you make that shift? And I was actually out of the office. I was on my honeymoon, of all things, and received a call from one of my co-residents that this um, resident who had been struggling with some depression and anxiety, I think his feelings about feeling disconnected or not in the right place really grew into a pretty significant depressive episode. And he had unfortunately overdosed and was in intensive care. um, And eventually his family did withdrawal care. So, you know, it was just, it was shocking and, and so, so sad. I mean, in a psychiatry residency, we certainly talked a lot about how we felt about it, our experience and how we were coping. And I think what really struck me is meeting his psychiatrist and therapist who came to speak with us and just watching them and thinking like, how on earth can you get through something so painful like this and keep going and, and come and face everybody? You know, is there self-blame involved? How are they coping. And I think that just really affected me in thinking about my practice going forward. 
what was I going to be able to do to maintain resilience in the face of my own patient losses or, you know, negative outcomes, poor outcomes. And so it was a really powerful experience. I will never forget, you know, some of those moments in listening to his psychiatrist speak. Um, and so, so sad. And of course, there have been many recently prominent um, physician suicides. And every time I see that, I just, again, that trauma all over again of, of how painful it is to lose one of our amazing colleagues. What did the psychiatrist say that you remember? She just said, you know, he told me when he woke up, he was just in constant pain. Like it just hurt to exist. And I thought, wow, what a, a powerful way to describe how serious this was. And she said, you know, we tried all of these different things. We really gave him our absolute best. And in some cases, that isn't enough. And in some cases, these illnesses become terminal, unfortunately. And I think just hearing her describe how he was feeling and thinking how someone who was such a star, I mean, he was such a lovely, lovely man, could think that there was no other choice but to make this decision because he was in such intense pain. I think it better helped me understand how people can get to that place and try and find ways to intervene before, but knowing that in, as in all fields of medicine, the only physicians that don't lose patients are those that aren't in clinical practice. And so really trying to go forward with that in mind, but still trying to maintain, you know, your, your concentration and compassion. Wow. What, a, what an experience, especially during your training. It must have mm -hmm. really set the direction of your career in, in many ways. Yeah, no, absolutely. So now that you are in training and you're helping uh, people, obviously some who are quite extreme, some who are, who are let's say, not as, as, uh, in as bad as shape, um, what are the type of things you find uh, most effective uh, for helping the people? What's your approach? Mm-hmm. Well, what I find, I mean, when you talk about specifically in physician burnout or physician depression, there is this, you know, comment that telling a patient, telling the, you know, doctor that they should be in, in therapy or see a coach really feels like you're blaming them for the problem. And I do think that certainly systemic and organizational changes are primarily where we need to make changes for physician health in this situation. But I also know that when I'm working with people individually, a big part of that work is actually helping them recognize where they don't have control and where they can't really honestly take responsibility, things that are outside of their control. For example, you know, lack of PPE or inadequate options for treating this new virus that had come out, really helping them see that, look, as a physician, we're really nurtured and cultured to be taking responsibility in a broad way. And I think when there are things outside of our control that are really affecting and hurting our patients and ourselves, our families, we want to take responsibility for that. But then that leads to feelings of guilt and shame. So the work that I do is just the opposite in working with physicians, not saying this is your fault, you need to get better with therapy, but look, here are all the ways that what's going on around you has affected your ability to do your job at its best. And if situations were different, you would be approaching this differently. And I think just that insight, knowing they're not alone in how they're feeling and that they're not to blame for some of these outcomes, I think that's work that's going to need to be an ongoing focus for some of the moral injury that physicians are facing and nurses and other healthcare, um, you know, staff, of course. Well said. Now, I know you, you mentioned the physicians. You have uh, patients who are not physicians as well. Um, how different do you find the physicians uh, and even the nurses to be from your non-clinical patients, not clinical providers? 
Yeah, interesting question. I do think that this theme of responsibility comes up so often. I think that we, um, as physicians, like I said, take on so much responsibility and are much more quick to blame ourselves and to take both responsibility but also the blame for situations in a way that doesn't seem to be as common among other patients. Of course, I see it in people who are in non-clinical roles. But I think those who go into medicine have the sense that they're going in to really help people to have their knowledge affect some positive change. And so I see them being really hard on themselves in some of these situations and getting to a point where it's very hard for them to take steps to care for themselves because they are so used to caring for those around them. I certainly hear this in particular recently from the mothers, the other women in my practice who really feel like they have to care for everybody, try and buffer their children from the pandemic stressors. And so I've really seen that there as well. Um, But in particular, I think with physicians, it's very hard to help them move past the sense that they are at fault for some outcomes that are outside of their control. So what do you think the organizations in which these physicians work, what what do you think they can do to help the situation? Yeah, well, that's the million-dollar question, right? I think if it were a simple solution that it could have been easily put in. I do think that one of the frameworks that really has shifted over time, I was talking to my father about this and thinking about our, you know, my grandfather, is that the physician now really is an employee in so many different settings in a way that, you know, does remove significant amounts of the autonomy. My maternal grandfather was the only physician in town. He made decisions. He was before Medicare, so he didn't have the governmental you know, um, payments and things like that to think about. And now I think so many physicians, as we've had this consolidation of big healthcare systems, are employees. But I don't know that as we've brought over quality metrics from business and other industries that we've necessarily brought over our kind of employee, you know, support, our employee training, leadership training, you know, executive coaching that is so prevalent in some of these other areas really hasn't necessarily been brought in. So I think even just a shift, which may be frankly forced by the younger generation who are coming in saying, look, these work conditions are just not adequate. Working 60 hours a week, which is more than the majority of other professionals in other areas, is just not something that's sustainable for me to also have my life. And I want to maintain some relationships and I want to have other experiences. So I do think that shifting to how do we retain employees, right? Looking to some of the other industries, how are they attracting and retaining top talent? Because as we have this mass resignation of physicians, nurses, and other healthcare providers, I think those remaining have to see that, look, they have to recognize leverage they have and saying, look, this is not working. And I can't just take on more and more work as we're losing people. I need to have some support and I need increased resources, right? Staffing shortages are rampant. They're certainly present in rural North Dakota where I grew up, but they're also present in urban areas and throughout the country. So I think, you know, trying to optimize staffing, trying to recognize where the burden is being placed on physicians to do a lot of non-clinical work, EMR, for example, or other clerical work, I have physicians who are calling to try and get beds when they're, you know, seeing patients in the ER and things are so hectic. So I think there are a number of different changes that can happen, but really trying to mobilize, you know, us as physicians to recognize that we deserve to be treated as a, you know, a valued employee. And we also need to have the staff 
be feeling good, if nurses and other healthcare providers are really struggling, it's a team sport. And so the whole team is affected, obviously. So I do think those are some of the areas that I've been thinking about. So what's the role of the physicians being involved, let's say having a seat at the table in this whole uh, discussion, not just for their own well-being, but for the broader healthcare uh, issues as well? Right. I mean, I think it's crucial because, you know, every physician is a leader. You're a leader of your team. You're a leader of your practice. And we need to have those physician leaders saying, look, this, the electronic medical record may be optimized for billing or may be optimized for something else, but it's not optimized for the clinical flow or for me to actually see patients. That you're hearing more and more, even patients saying, you know, I was, I saw my doctor and all he or she did was just type on the computer the whole time. Right. So really having physicians that are helping to optimize the electronic health record and see what are the ways that could actually work for clinicians. I think being able to say in real time, what are the challenges that we're facing in the clinical realm and what are some changes that can happen individually and in a really focused way for those particular challenges in particular settings, right? You're going to have different challenges across different healthcare systems. But we need to have a voice because physicians, we are, you know, bright and hardworking and conscientious and to really be present with administration to be working together as opposed to being seen as an employee that's there for kind of a production line of RVUs. Very nice. And I know you've also spoken a little bit about preventive mental health, not just for physicians, but in general. Could you speak to that as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think there is discussion certainly about preventive health in general, but I think the absence of true preventative mental health discussions is important. You know, when it comes to the difference between burnout and depression, for example, I mean, depression we see as a clinical disease with particular symptoms and burnout more related to work-related stress or some specific environmental-related stress. And so I think looking across these different aspects and trying to see What are the areas that are really starting people down the path toward, as I said earlier, the shame or guilt of some of their challenges, the sort of internalization of some of the difficulties, for example, in psychiatry? There is such a bottleneck in inpatient beds and then a bottleneck from inpatient beds to a step-down partial hospitalization. And so you have people who are either boarding in the emergency room or are sent home with inadequate outpatient support. And therefore, you know, then you have physicians and other people struggling with this moral injury of making choices they know are not helpful for the clinician, for the patient. We also have families who are trying to cope with very ill loved ones and family members, and they don't have training to care for these providers. And we also have, you know, the the police force and other, you know, criminal justice who are trying to be more involved than they likely want to be with people who are in an acute mental health crisis. They're doing their best and they're increasingly going through different trainings and getting support, but it's just nowhere near what we need to have available with mobile crisis units and things like this. So I do think looking back to the very beginning and starting to see what's getting people down this path, right? What are some of the experiences? experiences, even something like insomnia. It's such a huge issue. So many people struggle with sleep. And yet I'm always surprised how 
you know, little people know about just how we can make those changes. Maybe they're on a medication for years to help their sleep, but that's not actually targeting the sleep issues. Similar to being on something like Xanax for panic disorder for years and years, you're not actually able to get better. You're just using the medications to decrease those symptoms, but it really puts people in a place where over the long term, they can really have worsening symptoms and become you know, clinically depressed or, or struggling with severe anxiety. Well said. Um, as a physician, I, I'm sure you have your stressors, as all physician, practicing physicians have their stressors, but I hear such a passion for what you do. Where do you get your energy? Well, I think, you know, as my father would always say, there is just nothing like being a doctor. There's nothing like that doctor-patient relationship. And he had even left medicine when he was in his training um, because he had had a, a family emergency and ended up being able to come back into medicine and felt so grateful and was always really emphasizing that throughout my life. Like what a privilege it was that these individuals are sharing with you their you know most intimate moments, their their fears, their physical pain that they're in, and I think that's how I really view this: is that it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to sit with someone in a room or on telehealth, for that matter, and really let have them open up to me and allow me to step in and try and help them with the training that I have available. I just think it's such a powerful connection, and I wish that there were more ways for us to have the time that we really want to have with patients. I know my grandfather would sit by the bedside when someone had had a heart attack. He couldn't do that much, honestly, but he could really connect and listen and talk with the patient. And he had, you know, so much time. And I think time is really missing from our doctor-patient encounters. So this is why I'm passionate in trying to help other physicians create the kind of experiences that, you know, my father had in his years and that I've had as a provider. I've also noticed sometimes that people sometimes get energized who are working hard by taking on something additional. And in your case, you t you've taken on this writing and communication role. Can you tell us about how you started doing that and what that, how that fits in with everything you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So I think in talking about you know, physician guilt, I definitely felt that as we were going through the pandemic and I was in a private practice. I had been in an academic center for five years and just really needed to step away to have, again, more autonomy and more ability to see the patients you know, with the time that I wanted in the way that I wanted. But I felt like, gosh, there's such an incredible need and I cannot possibly reach these all these people in my individual practice, but I want to do more. I want to help in some way. And so I did start doing some writing as far as a blog and also submitting different work to places like Doximity, where a lot of physicians read these articles. And I also started my podcast, the Reflective Doc Podcast, where I actually interview people out there who are in healthcare, therapists, coaches, other providers, to sort of find out what they're up to and really hear kind of practical help for individuals who might be listening. I wanted to try and bring kind of this ivory tower academic information to, you know, thinking about my small town and thinking about people who were still living there and had so little access to care. So I love that there's this ability for everyone to access the podcasts, you know, ideally for free. There are a lot of streaming sites, so hopefully they're able to do so. But it's an option for them to learn a little bit about what I talk about with my patients every day in practice. They don't have to come in and see me in person. They can just listen on the podcast and really learn some of these different strategies and try and get evidence-based information, accurate information information about mental health, mental illness, and treatment options. And how do you choose your topic and guests? 
You know, I think in part, I am a perpetual student. So it is often things that I'm really interested in learning about or that I'm hearing a lot from my patients being interested in or just comes up in my family. You know, there's been so much discussion about medical marijuana and cannabis. And I heard a terrific um, talk from a clinician at Columbia. Um, and so reached out to her and brought her on to talk about, you know, the different challenges of cannabis and, and trying to use that for different, you know, anxiety or insomnia, brought someone on to talk about psychedelics in their use in uh, mental health treatment. I talk, had someone come on and talk about medical malpractice and what it's like as the individual provider to go through a malpractice suit. And it is now she's now helping people who are trying to go through this themselves. And so in many cases, these people have had experiences with this area or maybe even their own personal challenges, and they're shifting over and now sharing that expertise and information more broadly. So that's what I'm trying to get a, give a microphone to is people who said, you know, you can get through this. I got through this. Here's how I did it or here's what I've learned. Let me share it with you. And it's a really meaningful way to connect with some of my colleagues around the country. Wonderful. And you mentioned some of these had to do with the malpractice, and but in, on topic of burnout and things of that nature, are you doing more work in that regard? Or is, is that the direction you're going? Or where do you think it's going? Yeah. I mean, I think a number of my listeners are other physicians. I certainly had such a pouring out of interest after that malpractice discussion, for example. And a lot of my writing lately has been on physician burnout and just guilt and, and shame. I did recently have a piece in Doximity that just basically said, you know, my fellow physicians, this is not your fault. Like you didn't create the circumstances that led to this pandemic or led to the numbers of, you know, lost patients that we've had throughout it, some of the shortages we've had, some of the challenges we've had. And so that's really where I've been putting some writing out is how do we help, like I said, help physicians see that it isn't you know entirely their fault that these things are happening. I am trying to work on a, a book. I've worked with primary care and family medicine departments and have done sort of a general psychiatry overview. And so I'm working on trying to create kind of a low-key, easily read book that can just help some of the providers who are really overwhelmed right now by individuals with mental health concerns. So if that helps them just a little bit in knowing how to manage some of those common complaints, maybe I can help them not feel so overwhelmed and eventually so burned out. We talked a bit about what organizations can do to help in terms of helping the physicians. What can you say about maybe society or policy-wise? Is that something you've thought about as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think that one important thing is is really looking at mental health access. And this is also something I real feel, really feel passionately about, in part because, again, where I grew up, you know, my father always said it was so hard for him to get good psychiatric treatment or referrals when he was in practice and really saw what kind of outcomes that led to. You know, our mental health, our thoughts, our feelings, our psychiatric illnesses – you know, affect our management and our response to treatment in all other areas of medicine. So I do really think that increasing access to well-trained psychiatrists, psychologists, other mental health professionals, whether it's on, you know, in the outpatient clinic, whether it's in practice like I am, or consulting within these clinics. I've been embedded in a family medicine clinic and help the residents with each patient. They could present something to me if they were a little confused, or they often would make the joke that it's sort of like a, a recipe. You do a little of this medication and a little of this one. And I think just having me there seemed to help build their confidence for them to treat the patients themselves 
but knowing, okay, what, how does I, how do I start lithium and what do I need to watch out for and what do we think about and not approach it, you know, feeling overwhelmed. So I think mental health access, I think coming up with new ways for psychiatrists to be collaborating with providers across the industry. If there is a shortage, how do we best spread people out to affect the most positive change? And I think from a, you know, policy level, really investing in treatment options for mental health, investing in appropriate reimbursements so that providers in these clinics aren't having to see patients every 10 minutes to try and break even, but are able to take the time that truly our patients need when they're coming in with some of their most painful experiences. You know, I've listened to you talk, and it's so interesting that you have a very broad experience. And you mentioned you grew up in a medical family, and you're in a medical family with a spouse that's medical. How do you, mm-hmm. how does how does that? How do you think that experience has? I mean, you already described so many ways that it's expected. It's affected you, but I'm just kind of uh, taken back by that that uh, that perspective you have. Yeah. Well, you know, I think my family is physicians and teachers. That's really across the board. My grandmother was one of eleven, and they all became educators or teachers. And so, I think that what it's really taught me is that not only do I love to really learn and gather new information, but I want to find a way to really simplify it and share it with others. And it's so amazing that when I have a question about it, even thinking about this podcast, I could call my dad, I called my sister, you know, and talk to her about her experience as being a working mother and surgeon. I can talk to my husband about his experience in orthopedics. I can call my friends around the country. So I think it's just, it puts me in a place where I really have this broad information but I also have a really powerful motivation and compassion for the challenges they face. Not that others, including our patients particularly, are facing so many challenges, but I do have this special place in my heart for the physicians who are really trying to take responsibility, really trying to take care, and are struggling themselves. And so I think having so many loved ones involved in the field, it just makes it that much more important that we make some changes. Very nice. Um, We're coming up to the end of our time. I wanted to know, do you have any closing thoughts or reflections you'd like to share? Well, I think one important thing I like to say to people in general as I'm talking about this is that your mind should be on your side. And I think in medicine, there's a lot of situations where we're really hard on ourselves or we're struggling with overwhelm or anxiety or we're feeling like we're not doing everything we could. And really, you know, working with a psychiatrist or a coach or a therapist, again, is not saying you can't handle this, you need to fix yourself. It's saying, okay, how can we help you view this in a way that's empowering and energizing and allows you to be able to do the things that you probably wrote about in your medical school application, right? What are the ways you truly want to affect change? And that can look so many different ways. It can be clinical, it can be non-clinical, like really broaden our options to be able to affect change and make positive movement in overall population health and population mental health. Well, very nice. Well, I want to thank you, Jennifer, for joining us today. You had a, you're covering a lot of material, and you have a wonderful experiences. And thank you for sharing it today with our audience. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love talking about this. It's so important, and I'm happy to talk further if anyone has questions. Well, that's our show for today. I want to thank Dr. Jennifer Reed for joining us today and for sharing both her insights and personal stories. You can learn more about Jennifer on her website, www. Dot thereflectivedoc.com. She's also on Instagram with the handle at thereflectivedoc. If you wish to learn more about the coalition, please visit our website at www.forphysicianwellbeing.org. 
You can also check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. I also want to thank our volunteers and the staff from the coalition who made this podcast possible. Finally, I'd like to thank ASESIS, A-C-E-S-I-S, Incorporated, for sponsoring my time working on this podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Coalition for Physician Wellbeing, its board, or other members of the coalition. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Brown, wishing our caregivers out there meaning, purpose, and joy in the practice of medicine. Together we are stronger. Until next time.